Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back, everyone, to Trashy Divorces, your weekly exploration of Greek shipping magnates. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, friends. I'm Alicia. I'm Stacy. And you know me. Well, if you haven't ever listened before, you don't know me. But if you are a returning listener, thanks for coming back. And you know that I always will work in Jimmy Buffett when I'm able. You will. Half of our country this week has mm-hmm. been polar vortexed. In so, some cases, brutally. Um, we're thinking of everybody out there, but we figured we'd go someplace warm. We hope that you have not shot six holes in your freezer, but it is always a good time for Jimmy Buffett. We're going sailing this week with some boat drinks. I want to go where it's warm. Men with yachts. <laughs> <laughs> Who do you have this week? Good Lord. Aristotle Onassis. Not too many wives, one ex-wife, but as the trashy scale goes, extreme, extreme, extreme trashy, and also the brother-in-law of your guy this week, Stacey. just the puzzle piece. I mean, Stavros Niarchos, his contemporary, fellow Greek shipping magnate, fellow billionaire, fellow playboy, and like literally... Chasing the same sisters. <laughs> you thought you knew arch enemies from the Marvel Universe. Wow. However, welcome to our Trashy Divorces mm-hmm. this week. Before we get started with Stavros and Aristotle, I want to give some big thanks for our, oh gosh, crocheted trash can. Jess mm-hmm. S. shared her craft with us and it's filled with little hearts that are pink and purple. It's and very so cool. good. I want to give another big shout out to Pecky B., Because I am the new proud owner, we, but you really, I am the new proud (laughs) owner of a new tarot deck with cats on it. And it's delightful. It's delightful and super clever. Um, So thank you both. That was like a very fun trip to the post office. Thank you, Jess S and Pecky B. Y'all are awesome. We have some more awesomeness to hand out this week in our Magic Mirror with our new Patreon supporters. We definitely do. Thank you so much for joining us at patreon.com slash trashy divorces to Nicole T, Tanya T, Shay T, probably not, not all related. related. No. <laughs> Charlotte, Allison N, Alexandria D, and Allison C. Michelle D, Elizabeth S, Carrie T, Samantha, Sean, Regina V, and Ashley T. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us over Mm -hmm. there. We've got some other enormous shout-outs to give to two new super supporters this week, Stephanie and Zeth. Welcome to Team Trash Candy. We're glad to have you. All of y'all. Thanks, everybody, for returning back to us for another Sunday. If we're going to get to somewhere warm, (sighs) I guess I know what we need to do. Do you know what we need to do? We need to enjoy our boat drinks, but we also need to go, go, go. All right, Alicia, I think you have the more famous in America half of our trashy brother-in-laws today. Yeah, today I'm going to talk about Aristotle Onassis, shipping magnate and tycoon. Bad to his wives, 
worse to his lovers. <laughs> Let's talk about it. Aristotle is a January 20th baby, which makes him a Capricorn mm. man. And in his lifetime, he will collect the world's largest privately owned shipping fleet. And in so doing, a lot of power, a lot of wealth, a lot of women. I'm going to just point out that that is a debatable fact. You just <laughs> <laughs> Things start out pretty good for Aristotle. He's born in 1906 in the port city of Smyrna, which is now Turkey. His father, Socrates, naturally. Come on. Hey. If. Your name is Socrates. Of course, you're calling your kid Aristotle. And then there's baby Plato. <laughs> <laughs> Socrates, daddy, uh, daddy Socrates, is a uh, tobacco trader. Dad does well in tobacco. Dad is eventually going to work his way up to be the head of the stock exchange in Smyrna. Little Aristotle's mother passes away, Penelope, when he's six, leaving a sister. And Ari, a little sad. But Daddy Socrates remarries, which will add two half-siblings to the family. They're a wealthy family, best schools for the kids, which has a young Aristotle learning four languages. Kind of a big deal. It's good that he has. Because shit gets bad in 1922, when Turkey invades Smyrna, and a 16-year-old Aristotle Onassis will watch his city burn from the bridge of a ship. Everything that was there is not there anymore. No home, no inherited wealth, nothing of the prospects that this kid had remain. It's raised. Aristotle's going to flee from the great fire with his family. And he's not alone. Hundreds of thousands of refugees are fleeing Smyrna to get to Greece. And Aristotle is one of the lucky ones. A lot of his family does not make it out of Smyrna. They are murdered within a church where they have sought sanctuary. Hmm. It's terrible. But Aristotle is 17 and alive, and with $100 in his pocket, he decides that his fortune will be made in Buenos Aires, Argentina. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was not top of mind for me, but go ahead. Where young Aristotle will work as a nighttime switchboard operator, which gives him a lot of time, because it's not very busy, to eavesdrop in on the conversations and practice all those international languages that hmm. he learned back in Smyrna. Does he collect blackmail material too? I cannot verify that in the story, but I have no doubt that Aristotle is picking up some shady, shady info, I mean, intelligence, what ups. What ups. Okay. So this is 1923 and all the ladies are swooning over an actor named Rudolph Valentino. Hmm. Rudolph has starred in The Sheik and The Son of the Sheik. And the success of these movies, and most especially the way old Rudy Valentino handles a cigarette, gives Aristotle Onassis an idea. I will partner with my father. We will import tobacco into Buenos Aires and market it to women. Hmm. That is their big brand invention. Aristotle is going to find a famous opera singer. Her name is Claudia Muzio. He's going to get an opera singer on the Siggies? Yeah, to be the public face <laughs> of the brand. He will sway Claudia. Interesting. To, yeah, take on this brand ambassador role. He shows up at her dressing room one night with this enormous group of flowers and also seduces her too. So Aristotle is a millionaire by the time he's 25. Wow. He's appointed vice consul of Greece in Buenos Aires. Hmm. Also, while everyone is bailing out of the shipping business, right, because it's 1931 and the Great Depression, 
is tanking so many lines of industry all over the world. This is when Aristotle gets in. He's going to buy a fleet of six boats for half price, and soon enough, profits are rolling in. By 1938, Aristotle recognizes the demand for global oil and will begin building ships. He'll build at this time his first ship called the Ariston. It's the first tanker to be built with a swimming pool on board. In case your oil needs some (laughs) R&R. I mean... No, I get it. All right. World War II comes. Small problem. In the way of his plan of world domination, because he's always making a plan, Aristotle, he's going to lease the ships that he has acquired to the United States to transport war supplies. And when the war is over, there's a lot of surplus that you can pretty much get for a bargain price. But Alicia, this is not a podcast about shipping fortunes. And hell, it's 1946. You know, this week it kind of is, though. (laughs) Aristotle's 40. Where's the marriage to get to the trashy divorce? There's no marriage for Aristotle until this point. Now, he dates plenty. All the ladies. He likes strong and independent women. He dates Greta Garbo, Veronica Lake, Avita Perone. He is having a great time. Old Aristotle is at being an independent businessman. Ladies are never the problem, but there's no wife in sight. Aristotle says he approaches every woman he meets as a potential mistress. Until... Well, not until. (laughs) Until feminism. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Aristotle has been aggressively courting a girl, a 14-year-old girl named Athena Livinos. She is the daughter of a very wealthy Greek shipping magnate named Stavros Livinos. Now, this is not your Stavros that you're talking about. This is another independent Mm -hmm. Stavros. It's a different Stavros. But here's the thing. Both your Stavros Mm -hmm. and Aristotle. Indeed are both courting this 14-year-old child. Yeah, and it's not like Stavros is 16 at this point. It's really gross. No, Stavros is 37. Aristotle's Mm -hmm. like, it's It's gross. gross. So the competition (gasps) is underway, and it's super sick. (laughs) It's sick. (laughs) I'm I'm glad we're calling it what it is, because as I was researching this, I was just like, heebie-jeebies. No, it's gross. Now, Aristotle and his persona is not dignified. He's not cosmopolitan, but fuck if he's not determined and really does persevere in pursuit of a 14-year-old child. And Daddy Stavros Livinos is like, um, see, I have this other daughter who's older. Her name is Eugenia, and I need to marry her first. It's very Shakespearean, right? You can't marry my younger daughter until I marry the older daughter, and it's impossible for you to marry her anyway. Because she's 14 and her older sister is 17. And why don't you want that first one? And even in the 1950s, some things are against the law. Right. Well, your Stavros asks for Tina's hand first, but is denied. But Aristotle keeping up the momentum. There are private parties, there are gifts, there are trips on the yacht. And finally, by 1946, Daddy Stavros agrees and December 28th, 1946, Tina and Aristotle will marry. Tina is 17. Aristotle is 40. And this marriage will raise Onassis's influence through the roof. Here begins also the rivalry with Aristotle and your Stavros for real. I mean, this is a tit-for-tat competition. Well, I built a big yacht. Well, I'm going to build a bigger yacht. 
oh, well, I have a private island now, Scorpios. Oh, well, my private island is better. It is constant and unrelenting between our two dudes from this point on. I Yeah, I... In a better world, they would have ended up together. <laughs> Aristotle, that was funny. Aristotle and Tina have two kids. Alexander in 1948. Christina is born in 1950. Both kids born in New York City. And the marriage to Tina redeems Aristotle Onassis. Like, the kid who lost everything is now in the highest echelons of Greek power and have, like, Beaten the old school Greek system. And some light child trafficking. Like <laughs> Aristotle's having a pretty good time. He's beat out his rival Stavros. He's landed the girl. He has the kids. Life is going great. Christian Dior handcrafts Christina's doll clothes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Christian Dior makes designer outfits for Christina Onassis's dolls. That's cool. She's gonna. She's a profile on all on her own. That's fine. One coming day, but Aristotle married to a celebrated beauty. He has a son to take over everything. One day things are grieving, but Aristotle, like so many other men that we have seen on this podcast, is not able to keep his penis in his pants, and the marriage is pretty much busted by the mid nineteen fifties. Tina knows he's fooling around, and the marriage is a construct. They are throwing great parties together. They keep up the ruse for social appearances sake, but the love is, how you say, (laughs) gone. And Tina, what's good for the goose and all that? She's like, I can gander. So Tina is going to begin an affair with Brazilian millionaire. I was going to say she's all of 20, 21 years old. (laughs) Reynaldo Herrera and Aristotle, the goose. Doesn't really like her gandering. Not happy? He's furious. You cannot mm. gander like that, wow. Tina. So Aristotle will retaliate and begin his infamous affair with married opera star mm-hmm. Maria Callas. Mm-hmm. Aristotle will invite Maria and her husband mm. onto the yacht, Christina, with his wife. And things go great on the boat for a while. Tina and Maria will sun themselves take excursions, enjoy each other's company. But then Tina's getting a little suspicious that something may be happening between her husband and the internationally famous opera diva. Something happens. We don't know what, but something happens and Tina leaves the boat with cartoon smoke puffs behind her. She gets off the boat so fast. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. Marriage over. We can suppose what may have happened. I suspect we can. You can tell the girl who left the tights on your boat I was that she say, can have you now. I don't yeah. actually think there's much mystery about what likely happened. <laughs> but Tina's out. Even in either of those cases. Right. And soon Tina's filing for divorce originally in New York State for adultery. Because that's the one state where you have to go through the proof of blah, blah, blah. And she wants custody of the kids. Tina's now 30, and she's going to call out in courts that Aristotle has been committing adultery. I love this. Not just regular adultery, international adultery. He has committed adultery in the United States, France, Monte Carlo, Greece, and Turkey. Just lists out his- Go big or go home. International countries of fucking (laughs) Aristotle. Like, just an international gigolo, right? 
So Tina will give in court the initials of J.R. My husband has been carrying on this international affair with J.R., but everyone knows it's because of Maria Callas. So the divorce between Aristotle and Tina won't happen until the following year, 1960, and it will take place in the divorce capital of the United States at the time. Yes, ma'am. Alabama. The great state of Alabama. Covered that a few seasons back. Tina comes into town, into Mobile, gets a library card, buys an apartment, and the divorce is done in like a week. Leaving Tina free in 1961 to marry John Spencer Churchill, Mm -hmm. the 11th Duke of Marlborough. Mm -hmm. And that marriage will go on about 10 years, ending in divorce in 1971. I cover it in my story. Well, that's my next line. Mm -hmm. I'm going to leave Tina here because she's coming back around in your story. Everybody wants to take a shower after this one. That's what I'm certain of. (laughs) We're not quite done with her yet, but we're done with her for now. So let's get back to Aristotle and the scandalous affair with Maria Callas. So they meet back in 1957 at a party hosted by Elsa Maxwell in Venice. And that Elsa Maxwell, man, she's always busting up somebody's marriage with who she introduces to somebody else. Maria married is blown away by Aristotle. Maria's 35, Aristotle's 51, and Maria's already married to an older millionaire. But Aristotle gives a party for Maria, and she is literally left gasping. Like, this is more money than her millionaire husband. This is billionaire wealth. Money like she can't imagine. And Aristotle and Maria are in love. They're both married. But they talk about marriage all the time, and certainly, once they are both divorced, they will be married. And she does her part, 1959 through, oh my God, so much strife, divorces her husband, and will lose a lot in the process. Her leading diva role, her contracts, her gigs, but no matter, she's going to get the man she loves. Aristotle's divorce. Comes through from Tina in 1960, and hear the silence. There are no wedding bells. Aristotle tells her all the time, "We're gonna, we're gonna get married, babe. Me and you, me and you against the world." So Maria Callas goes and makes an announcement to the press: "We're getting married," because Aristotle told me so. And Aristotle will tell those same reporters that that's just Maria playing a childish prank on you. Just your fantasy. You know those divas. We're, we're, we're not getting married. Maria doesn't retaliate, doesn't say anything, sticks by her man in love. God, Aristotle's such a shitbag. <laughs> Maria is not beaten physically, but she is definitely subjected to some brutal treatment. Aristotle is mean. He is emotionally abusive to her. He likes to insult her with such zingers as shut up because you're stupid your nose is too big your legs are fat your glasses make you look ugly the worst maybe you're just a c word with a whistle in your throat and only good for fucking wow Mm -hmm. so it's bad enough that there's this assault of verbal and emotional abuse hurled towards his lover who he's supposed to love but he doesn't do this privately he does this in front of other people. Oh, my so God. So her humiliation is abject and total. Onassis, he's terrible to his wives and lovers. Yeah. Terrible. Well, and her mother was horrible, right? Like, her mother was c- incredibly overbearing. And then 
Maria Callas had like this massive weight loss. Her story is early fascinating. Her yeah, and yeah. I think we're probably going to have to bring that side piece at some point. I think on so. Patreon. It, it sounds like he identified her buttons and started pushing. And put, just pushed them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's mm-hmm. a fascinating character all on her own, but not involved in his. Right, well, right. His devolved, well, it, sure. Blah. Okay. Oh, spider webs. So, Everything's connected. So, what happens in their loving relationship? So, the treatment gets worse. But Maria, stick it in, stick it on. And of course, there's one day that it all changes. 1963. Lee Radziwill is on the Christina, the yacht, right? But she's got to leave very suddenly to go be with her sister, Jacqueline Kennedy, to Jacqueline's bedside because Jacqueline has given birth to a son, Patrick, who sadly dies two days after his birth. When Lee comes back to the yacht, She's sad. She tells Aristotle and Maria about the sadness of Jacqueline. And Aristotle's like, hey, let her come on the boat. Let her come to the Christina. She can recover here. It'll be swell. Jacqueline does convalesce on the Christina with her sister. few things about this boat. The sinks have solid gold faucets shaped like porpoises. Uh, All the bedrooms are named after Greek islands. The centerpiece of the yacht. It has a mosaic pool, which can be drained and then raised into a dance floor. Good times, I guess, if you can get them. <laughs> 1963 is an exciting year for Maria. She gets pregnant at 43. She's wonderfully excited about making her dream come true of, I want Aristotle's child. And Aristotle is like, yeah, no, honey, you're going to have to get an abortion. To add insult to injury, Aristotle also has a new mistress. Her name is Lee Radziwill. Oh, my God. <laughs> Which I guess is fine. Like, Aristotle's gonna stottle. But both Lee Radziwill and Maria Callas are pretty pissed, shocked, alarmed, horrified, when the news is announced October, I want to say 15th, mid-October 1968, that Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy is going to become the new Mrs. Aristotle Onassis in a week. And holy cats, the world reacts to this. And okay, y'all, this is a story coming on Patreon this week because it's not a trashy divorce per se. It's a super trashy wedding, super trashy marriage through and through, probably on its way to have been a trashy divorce But Aristotle will pass away before the trashy divorce can actually happen. Aristotle dies much earlier than his for real physical death in 1975. Back in January of 1973, Aristotle is devastated. His son Alexander is killed in a plane crash. And Aristotle's health, physical condition, mental condition, everything begins to deteriorate very quickly after the passing of his son. Once he does, for real, pass away in 1975, Jacqueline is left as his widow, leaving Maria Callas heartbroken, per usual. Because their affair, Callas and Aristotle get back together in 69 and keep having an affair until his death. Like, she's mad at him for a year. Oh, and I'm sure. he comes and beats on her door and brings flat. It's, uh, oh, God, okay. There's lots more coming up in Spiderwebs this week on Patreon with the trashy wedding and marriage of Jackie O and Aristotle Onassis, but 
I think this one wraps it up. Aristotle Onassis, in my summary, bad wives, bad women, do not like, do not recommend. As trash cans go, you get a boat, Aristotle. Nope. A yacht. A yacht full of trash cans, dude. A yacht in the pool, in the cabin rooms, everywhere. Just filled. A yacht full of trash cans. Aristotle Onassis. Bad to women. Good to ships. (laughs) Bad to women. Bad to swimming pools, apparently. Apparently. Drain it. Dance on it. Whatever. (laughs) That's Aristotle Onassis. All right. Well, that is just half of the trashy duo of trashy Greek shipping magnates. You wanted to go where it was warm. Let's take a quick break. We'll hear from our sponsors this week, and we will be back with the rival Stavros. of Socrates' son. Stabby. Stavros. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> See you on the flip. Hey, Trash Pandas, when you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island, from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, Stacy, that was only sort of one half of the piece of this puzzle. You are back with the rest of the story. I I am. Uh, I didn't realize, in fact, when you were like, hey, how about these two? Quite how hand in glove this was going to be. But anyway, Aristotle Onassis, titan of the seas, though he was, was not the only Greek sea god of the 20th century. <laughs> nor the only billionaire playboy chasing skirts on the global stage in the aftermath of World War II. While Stavros Niarchos died in 1996 at the age of 86, 
Through the magic of the Schitt's Creek television series, the prominent family first name, in this case his grandson Stavros III, has been reinvigorated for a new generation. In life, Stavros I was probably best known for bigness. Big boats, big number of marriages, big, big fortune, as well as a big rivalry with that other Greek guy, Aristotle. There were like a ton of Greek shipping magnates at the time. It is remarkable. It's really like... That just that's just a thing you can put on your resume if you're Greek, apparently. <laughs> Mid-century shipping magnate. All right. <laughs> this really does feel like like a seriously mid-20th century toxic masculinity story to me. Like these two dudes, they're hyper competitive about everything. Everything. From the mm-hmm. minute they even know about each other, mm-hmm. they are to to death, to the mm-hmm. end. It's terrible. It really, they are in many ways defined by their opposition to one another. It's remarkable. Okay. So we will now get into the life and times of Stavros, Nearchos, first of his name. Baby Stav was born July 3rd, 1909 in Athens, Greece, to a family of some means. I don't think they were aristocratic, but they were, they were well off. His Greek great-great-grandfather had married into a Maltese noble family. And then their children had brought the family business back to Greece. So Stab's childhood included a stint in Buffalo, New York, randomly, where his parents had lived long enough prior to his birth to become naturalized citizens and owners of a successful department store. Really? Yeah. Mostly, though, he was just kind of a child of, you know, modest privilege in Athens who studied law and went into the family grain business and flour mills after graduating from the University of Athens. Apparently, he wasn't much moved by the ins and outs of milling, (laughs) but he saw real potential in the shipping side of the business. If the company owned the vessels that transported the wheat to and fro, it had the means to transport anything. Conveniently for young Stavros, as you noted, although not really conveniently for anyone else, the Great Depression was at that very moment engulfing the world's economy. So, like Aristotle, he picked up a number of large ships at fire sale prices as other shipping people went under. By the time World War II rolled in, the company owned seven steamers. It chartered these to the Allies for the war effort. He served, you know, six of the seven ships were destroyed. <laughs> this was unbelievable. risky strategy. When Stavros returned to private life after the war, he had a $2 million insurance settlement check in his pocket. Well, that's handy. Conveniently, for slightly less young Stavros, the world's militaries at that moment were shedding surplus gear at great rates, and soon he had himself a fleet of U.S. Liberty ships, just like big, big monster ships. Pennies on the dollar. Uh Uh-huh, that the Americans had been slapping together in a miracle of mass production all through the war. So by the end of the war, there were like 2,400 of these sitting around. Holy cats. (laughs) Okay, again... Lots of Greek shipping magnates, 526 of that 2,400 ended up with Greek shipping magnates like Aristotle and Stavros. Oh, and then smokes. Yeah. it's an alphabet soup of literally, I, it's all Greek to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, there, there were just a lot, I guess, because it's, there's so much coastline in Greece, like it makes sense. But anyway, the rest, as they say, is history. No longer a simple grain merchant, he founded Nearchus Limited, which at its peak operated 80 tankers, including the modern supertanker. He and Aristotle sparred over who had the biggest boat, so you can see how that goes, and that is not all they sparred over. No. 
Stavros's obituaries from 1996 when he died say that he was married six times, but that's not quite right. He had five wives, two of whom were sisters who would die of drug overdoses, one of whom had been arch-rival Aristotle's first wife, and one who was the daughter of Henry IV II, grandson of that Henry Ford. His first marriage to Helen Sporides lasted just about a year. He was like 21. It was in 1930. And, you know, he spent the 30s mastering the high seas or whatever and <laughs> didn't give matrimony another go until 1939 when he married Melpomene Caparis, a widow who had previously been married to a diplomat. Like, you can kind of see he's... Working his way his, up. Yeah, his station in life is is changing over time. But then what happens with wife number three? Because we've heard about her already. Mm. So, yeah, this this marriage covered the war years, but by 1947, he had found new love, divorcing Melpomene to marry Eugenia Livinos. Eugenia was just 20 when she walked down the aisle with Stav, but the marriage was a long time coming. Eugenia was the daughter of yet another Greek shipping magnate, also named Stavros, and her younger sister was Athena, i.e. by that point, Tina Onassis, the child bride of Aristotle. More importantly, the men had competed for Tina's affections, with Aristotle sealing the deal first and marrying her a year earlier than Stavros and Eugenia's wedding. As the sons-in-law of an established Greek shipping name, the marriages were good for both men's businesses. Stavros kind of set his eyes on European culture and began financing cruises that catered to, like, all the idiosyncratic and out-of-power royal families across the continent. Oh, interesting. Yeah, he wanted to just put himself at the center of society. Like, he really had a very strong opinion of, like, he he wanted to rule the world, basically. He had a private jet <laughs> in the 1950s and, you know, helped originate the concept of the jet set. That was... That was Stav. He uh, had an art collection, which he diligently built all through this period. This included works by Goya, Gauguin, Van Gogh, Renoir, and he had properties everywhere that people might want to visit. St. Moritz, Paris, New York, London, the Bahamas, like, you know, rich guy stuff. He and Eugenia would be married for about two decades, uh, including a period during which he had an affair with everybody's favorite future ambassador to France, Pamela Churchill Harriman. She had a lot of last names by the end of things, but um, anyway, you covered her a few weeks ago. They would have four kids together before Stavros. I mean, there is so much trashy divorces bingo card that's There's happening in this story. Trashily divorced her in a legally disputed 1965 Mexican divorce, and then still in Mexico married Charlotte Ford, great-granddaughter of the car guy. It turns out that there was some reason for haste in the matter, as their daughter Elena Ann Ford was born six months later. Ah, so this was like just an affair. I mean, he had a lot of affairs and this was just an affair that produced a pregnancy. And I guess he, I, whatever, dicey Mexican divorce is so noble. He's so noble. That he wanted to do the, well, I have to do the right thing and abandon my four children to my wife. <laughs> Complicated. Oh, it comes back around though. So Charlotte was 24, I think, when this happened. Clearly, she had just gotten wrapped up in a torrid love affair with this older billionaire. Uh, he had a lot of these torrid love affairs. So it was kind of a big story when Charlotte returned to a Mexican courtroom in March of 1967 with a divorce petition in hand. They were married for a little over a year. Uh, don't feel bad for old Stavros, though, because apparently when you're a billionaire, things are pretty like easy come, easy go. And so he just headed back to the arms of his long-suffering wife, Eugenia. 
That's perfect. I'm poor Eugenia. Yeah, this process was eased by the fact that under Greek law, the 1965 Mexico divorce was not valid. So aside from patching up his old marriage, (laughs) he had probably engaged in a little light bigamy with Charlotte. Perfect. I think I mentioned that Stavros and Aristotle were not men who left women better than they found them. No. In May of 1970, tragedy, tragedy, while the family was staying at his private island, again, these two guys could not, like, they they really only existed in opposition to one another. So this is um, Spetsopola, I believe is how it's pronounced. So Stavros calls Charlotte, his now ex-wife. And it's like, hey, I was hoping that baby Elena maybe could come to Spetsopula to visit. I have a previous partner in bigamy. I was hoping the kid could come visit. Okay, it is not clear whether Charlotte herself was also invited, but I, I think the supposition is that Charlotte and Elena would be traveling to Spetsopolis. Apparently, Eugenia really liked the daughter. But obviously, less fond of less the- fond of Charlotte. Oh, so this had some significant impact on poor Eugenia. That night, May the fourth, she swallowed twenty-five second-all pills mm. and went to bed. Stavros discovered her later in a coma. Called for a company physician to be helicoptered in from Athens, and this process took several hours. There were apparently local doctors on the island, but none of them were summoned. By the time the helicopter landed, Eugenia was quite dead, uh, and the doctor refused to sign a death certificate because of extensive bruising on her body. Mysterious. Stavros would insist for the rest of his life that this was from his attempts to revive his unconscious and dying wife, but he was arrested and briefly charged with manslaughter. The charges did not stick because billionaire, but also because Eugenia left a note which read, for the first time in all our life together, I have begged you to help me. I have implored you. The error is mine. But sometimes one must forgive and forget. Poor Eugenia. Yeah, she was 44. That's terrible. Yeah, like, so their son, Constantine, who was like eight Mm. when his mom died, would say later that his father broke Eugenia's spirit, which that seems about right. And we will... It won't be the only time he's going to do it. Right. Yeah, we will talk more about Constantine in Patreon this week because uh, he, man, this guy really screwed up a lot of people. (laughs) Stavros, I mean, uh, including Constantine. So during the inquiry into her death, a process that dragged on into October of that year, the kids were sent off to Aunt Tina in England with the Duke of Marlborough as her second husband. But, you know, mutual grief has a way of leading to unlikely pairings. And in early 1971, Tina divorced the Duke. Yes, she did. She and married he was her next husband. She married Stavros that October, about a year, about a year after Greek authorities had cleared him of murdering her sister. Like, this is a soap opera. This woman who he was courting when she was 14. Uh huh. Well, he's wanted her since she was 14, and he was 37, and he missed it out on her the first time. So. Isn't it really just a story of true love after all those years? Three years later, Mm -hmm. and keep in mind, Alexander is her son as well. So Alexander dies right after they get married. Mm -hmm. Three years later, Tina Onassis Niarchos died at Stavros' home in Paris, and it took Stavros a full day to announce her death, which fueled rumors that she also had died of an overdose. It was actually some kind of lung thing. 
maybe which led to a heart attack. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a doctor, Alicia. (laughs) You know, and at this point, I think the public had kind of begun to sour on Stavros and his bizarre love life and his just weird celebrity. Because poor Tina's the same age as her sister. Yeah, she was 45. When they passed, like, they're... It's oh, it's, it's just so sad. It is. I mean, you got to think the father-in-law, I mean, maybe he was gone by this time, but you've got to, that guy has to regret letting these men into his daughter's lives. Anyway, so Tina's daughter, Christina, with, with Aristotle, sued Stavros to recover her mother's $250, $250 fortune. What are the lawyer's fees going to be on that? $250 million fortune, which Stavros agreed to do in exchange for her dropping the suit because it also asked Greek authorities to annul the marriage entirely. Mm. The following year, Aristotle Onassis died and Stavros, deprived of his lifelong rival, like withdrew from public life. Just there was... Batman went back to his cave. Nothing to define him. What do I do now? Yeah, so... He seems to have spent his later years mostly focused on like a large herd of thoroughbred racehorses. And he was linked to several members of European aristocracy in his last decades, but he never married again. He was worth $12 billion at the time of his death. You're joking. I am not. So half of that he put into uh, philanthropy, which still apparently occupies a lot of Athens. I mean, Aristotle did the same. Even their philanthropies compete now. Like, right. It's <laughs> absurd. With the rest divided between his four children with Eugenia, Elena Ford was not included in his will. You're joking. I am not. And she Poor did sue. me, baby. I hope <laughs> she sued. Um, it, but it didn't result. I mean, she's like, she's from A the Ford, Ford fortune. Yeah, yeah she's, she's an okay. executive at the company. Like, whatever, she's fine. So I got to say, um, these two are just like kings of mid-century modern muck. And, like, I'm kind of skeezed out by both of them. So I'm going to give Stavros, similar to your assessment, he gets a super tanker full of trash cans. <laughs> Perfect. And I encourage everyone to take a long, long shower to wash off all of this toxic and debilitating masculinity. Yeah, those two. I've yeah. wanted to talk about these two for a long time because they're yeah. so trashy. I can see why. And, like, obviously the Jackie O thing, like, it blew my mind as a kid when I saw pictures of Jackie O and Aristotle Onassis. Like, that just made no sense to me whatsoever, but, you know. Yeah, that whole story is super trashy. We'll talk about it on Patreon this week. Oh, what else are we doing on Patreon? We're wrapping up our Ladies Who Lunch the Swan series. We're going to be talking about Truman's short story, La Cote Basque, 1965, where he does... All of his swans, dirty, dirty, dirty. All the swans we've talked about over the last month and a half, we're going to find out how he sells them all out in print. Truman, it's terrible. Spiderwebs will have nightcap chat tidbits per use. So if you need more trash candy, come visit us over there at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. And thank you for tuning in yet again. Oh my gosh, yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. To trashy Greek shipping magnates. <laughs> we hope that this warmed you up a little. <laughs> Wherever you are, stay safe, stay well, stay warm. It's been a heck of a week. Thanks for spending your time with us. We're so grateful for you and your trashy, trashy hearts. 
until we talk to you next week. Wash the paws. Oh, so much paw washing. Double mask it up. Mm -hmm. Put on three masks, hell, just for, it's cold outside. It's cold outside. Yeah. And keep your hearts entirely, entirely trashy, friends. But not as trashy as these two. Oh, no, they're an entirely different. Don't, don't go Onassis or Nearcos level trashy. That's, that's too much. It's too much trashy. Who's getting in the shower first, Miria? (laughs) Race. See you next week, friends. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at CarbonMade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at TrashyDivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at TrashyDivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at Patreon.com slash TrashyDivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear want to advertise with us reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information and last but not least come play with us on social media i keep most of our trashy divorces instagram hopping stacy and i share it up over on facebook including our trashy divorces podcast discussion group come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening keep it trashy y'all